from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thanks very much for coming along and, uh, and filling the room and uh, I hope it'll be uh, interesting, there'll be a little bit of um, chat about the Hawk and uh, where we're going, uh, what we've done and uh, what we'll be doing in the future. And I was very lucky to fly the SE5 about uh, six weeks ago at Shuttleworth as well, so that's another one, 100 years after that flew in 1918, so very, very happy with that. And from old to new, um, although you could say obviously the Hawk's pretty old, it's got a, got a great pedigree and anybody who's flown it knows it's a very popular aircraft. So. Uh, had many iterations over the years, which I'll cover in a moment, but uh, how can we make it better? What can we do to this aeroplane that is an effective aircraft and an effective trainer? And that was what we were looking at when we decided on uh, undertaking the uh, flight test programme for the Advanced Hawk. Um, good introduction on me, so you know me now. Uh, I will talk a little bit about uh, probably 45 minutes total, and uh, I'll raise my voice or ask questions if I see anybody nodding off. It's not too warm in here. <laughs> Um, I've got no video, I'm afraid, so I apologise for that. I normally try and put video in just to give people breaks, but I don't have that. I'll give a brief hit history of the Hawk uh, development, uh, aerodynamic airframe and systems development over its uh, lifespan. Um, the requirement for the Advanced Hawk programme, so why BA Systems decided to uh, undertake this programme and invest money in a, in a future Hawk. Um, what are the design features? And obviously, because it's a flight test lecture, some of the, the challenges we faced, some of the issues we uh, we faced in terms of flight tests, so dedicated to flight tests, not just the, uh, the aeronautical side of it. Uh, some t test programme and results, there's some, uh, some traces and results that I'd uh, be happy to answer questions on afterwards. And uh, it wouldn't be a, a good, or it wouldn't be a brief about flight tests if we didn't talk about some of the challenges we faced, some of the problems, some of the things we did well, some of the things that uh, we didn't do so well uh, for lessons learned. And that's what it's all about, this obviously, this environment is all about uh, sharing any, uh, any learning points that we've had through flight tests. And uh, future development, so I'd like that to be the biggest part of the, um, of the talk, but um, unfortunately it probably won't be. So the current Hawk Evolution, uh, this, is, uh, this should be quite familiar to most people, although, uh, and, and these aircraft are still flying around the world, and uh, the Red Arrows operate them, they're operated on uh, 100 Squadron at Leeming, and uh, I believe they're going to be around for a few years to come. You can see the cockpit is uh, pretty much steam-driven, very straightforward, and some of the modifications, so some of the, some of the work we've been doing at BA Systems is actually to introduce into the T-Mark 1, for example, a little um, iPad-style tablet here to provide a moving map display and possibly some form of uh, collision avoidance alert system uh, to mitigate safety for operating this aircraft at low level. But this is obviously the, uh, this is the standard design of that aircraft at the time. We had uh, cunningly painted it a different colour and changed the number, called it something else, but that's the export model of the, uh, of the initial Hawk version and uh, sold around the world. And there are more than a thousand Hawks, uh, there are more than a thousand Hawks out there in the world today. So not quite F-16 numbers, but pretty significant in terms of uh, a fast jet trainer. The uh, 100 series, um, digitised engine control system, and uh, displays, you can see there, multifunction displays and a head-up display, so really to train pilots from the sort of, from the days after Jaguar, Lightning, uh, more onto Tornado, multi-role aircraft, uh, Typhoon and Harrier. Uh, 200 series was uh, a short production run for the single-seat radar-equipped sort of fighter, uh, close-in fighter aircraft that went to a couple of nations. And you can see the cockpit 
the development, we've obviously got multiple displays and a, an upfront controller to enter data. There is a computer in the airplane rather than uh, just valves. And uh, it uh, obviously makes the, uh, the, the role of the pilot or rather the tasks of the pilot easier to perform, which is what aircraft design and cockpit design and ergonomics is all about, of course. So this is the latest Hawk, uh, a T2128. Uh, if it's an export version, again, it's got a different number, 165 for Saudi, 166 for Oman. And uh, they're all pretty much uh, the same to a degree. They've got three multifunction displays, uh, head-up display in the front cockpit, and uh, mission computer, dual, dual mission computer, digital flight, uh, engine control system, but they're still hydromechanical controls. Uh, there is an autopilot in the uh, in the system, but it's not digital flight control system. It's a mechanical system. Uh, but this is an aircraft designed specifically to train pilots for Typhoon, for sort of fourth generation or up to fifth generation fighter aircraft. The uh, for the inception of the new Hawk, we obviously need to have customers. We need to have or we need to identify air forces, navies, organisations where we think there will be interest in a product. Otherwise, obviously, we're not going to be actually garner any investment and actually get any interest in it. So the initial interest we had was for the, uh, the Air Force and the Navy of India. Uh, they had a great shortfall, and they've got an approaching great shortfall in combat aircraft. We looked at uh, using the Hawk, the Advanced Hawk. We called it initially, as you can see in red, the Advanced Combat Hawk, which was dropped subsequently uh, because it's not politically correct. And, um, but effectively, it was giving them, them the role of a, a dual trainer stroke fighter, a little bit of this, um, this fight fighter trainer that can be also used in company with uh, other aircraft, other, other operational aircraft. So it can carry bombs, it can carry missiles, it can carry weapons, and it can be directed by a more elegant fourth generation aircraft to the target, for example. Um, we wanted to give it a higher G and turn rate capability, so there were a couple of things we could do about that. Things like a little bit more thrust or change the wing, so we couldn't do much with the thrust in the end, but we did change the wing. And we wanted to give improved cockpit displays, partly to bring it into the fifth generation so that it would be a trainer suitable for more modern aircraft like Rafale and beyond Typhoon, so Typhoon's next iteration of cockpit and for F-35. Um, and we wanted to be able to emulate different aircraft, so the Indians have got a, a huge variety of combat aircraft, Russian, French, American, uh, all sorts. So we wanted to be able to provide them with a trainer that would cover the uh, digital systems for all of their aircraft, which we would be able to do with a large area display. And that's the L3 large area display, slightly more modern iteration than the F35. So it's basically a standard F35 high definition color display. Um, and this is ZJ100, which is a mock-up which went to Aero India 2017. <coughs> And as an aside, um, the Indians, unfortunately, have gone a little bit cold on the whole thing, sadly. But um, with the Advanced Hawk, we wanted to provide aerodynamic capability, avionics capability, training capability, and this attack and defence capability. And uh, one of the things, one of their specific requirements was operating in the Himalayas. And they've had a number of, uh, number of issues, a number of conflicts, where they have not been able to provide air support to their troops on the ground, in, um, in the Himalayan area, particularly in the summer. So we looked to operate the aircraft, uh, we looked to be able to operate the aircraft in, a, in lay 10,000 feet in the summer with a runway length of less than 10,000 feet. And there are some figures that we looked at for the Mark 132, which is the extant 100 series Indian Hawk with an 871 engine, so it's non-digital control engine, and the advanced combat Hawk, which had uh, the new wing, slightly uprated engine, 
and uh, improved brakes. And we found and demonstrated through simulation that uh, the aircraft could operate from that airfield, it could land and take off, and it could carry stores and, uh, and operate quite effectively, which clearly we thought was uh, a big advantage and would interest them greatly. Further requirements, uh, fourth and fifth generation uh, fighter aircraft out there, I've already mentioned from the Indian Air Force. Uh, there are obviously lots of other air forces out there that would be interested in an aircraft that would be ideally suited, for example, to train uh, pilots for F-35. A number of nations are buying those at the moment. I think the numbers are more than 3,500 they're talking about selling. Uh, whether that would be the final number or not, there's obviously a big market there. And uh, we bring in the TX uh, dimension in a moment. But uh, requirements for these aircraft involve, rightly or wrongly, whether you agree with them or not, operation at a higher angle of attack, uh, higher G and turn rate capability, which is sort of dogfighting, I guess, and improved cockpit displays, as I've already explained, and improved avionics and sensor fusion. So through emulation and simulation, we wouldn't put a laser-designated pod on the jet for training, but what we'd like to be able to do is emulate that through the mission control, missions, uh, mission systems. I mentioned TX, so I think everybody's probably aware of the, the TX competition. So Hawk uh, was initially entered a long time ago, but uh, it wasn't actually entered into the competition as such when it started uh, in earnest. But um, what we did was use the requirements that uh, the US Air Force and the government put out for TX as our benchmark of what to aim for. So we thought we have these are, these are requirements that are out there. Let's see if we can let's see if we can achieve them with this aircraft we're going to build and we're going to design. And uh, just to run through that, it's high G manoeuvring at 15,000 feet. So 15,000 feet for them was half of the envelope, um, including sustained and instantaneous turn rates. Uh, the biggest challenge probably for Hawk, you know, mechanically controlled, is that level one handling qualities across the board. So that means that um, it's not, for, it, it, forgive me for uh, simplifying, but it means that um, the pilot needs to find it very easy or straightforward to fly the aeroplane, even up to the limits of, uh, of its control. And that needs to be up to uh, over 20 degrees angle of attack. So the Hawk 100 series will stall at about 14, 14 and a half units angle of attack. And it doesn't fly very nicely at all above about 12, 12 and a half. And uh, we're looking at operating the aircraft as in flying it properly, being able to control it fully, turn, roll at angles of attack above 20 degrees, up to about 24 degrees. And uh, a final one was a 360 degree roll at an angle of attack above 20 degrees. And for this aircraft, just to give you an idea, for the Hawk, uh, the speed you'll be flying about at 22 degrees angle of attack is about 105 knots. So that's way below the threshold speed that you land at with full flap on a, on a normal approach. It's, it's a very, very slow speed. So you can think about the, um, the, the, the aerodynamic forces that are going to be uh, involved. We use ZJ951, which was uh, originally a demonstrator aircraft uh, for many moons ago for the uh, 100 series. And um, we wanted to um, utilize uh, equipment we already had rather than use anything brand new off the production line. But this aircraft hadn't flown since 2008. So it's a bit of a stretch um, with minimum cost to uh, provide an aircraft that we would use for a limited flight duration. So it's not production aircraft. It's not going to fly for 5,000 hours. It's got a limited life on the wing uh, and on the, on the tailplane, on the modifications that have been made, which I'll go through in a moment. But obviously it was done to try and minimize the cost. And uh, the idea for it was to provide this aerodynamic data, data and performance data to, uh, to furnish any future development of the wing, which would be a huge program, a much bigger program than this. If you think about this as a sort of experimental 
no more than 20 flight programs. It's quite a small bespoke program. So it's a demonstration of capability, which hopefully we will take forward. And if we find a customer to invest, we'll then go further. And almost as a side thought, it wasn't in the original plan, we decided to put the large aero display in the front cockpit. And I think that was a really good move because it's basically given an extra light, a lease of life to the aircraft because obviously we can use it now as a, a demonstrator or development tool for uh, all of those hawks, all of those thousand hawks that are out there in terms of developing the avionics and the future cockpit for the trainer itself. And that allows us to maximise the benefit of the investment. So the aerodynamic changes to the aircraft, um, it's uh, production-wise we would plan to have an actuated slat but uh, what we've got for development is a, is a fixed slat. Basically, it needs to be bolted in position, and we fly for it. it we fly, fly with that for X number of sorties, we land, we look at the data, and then we unbolt it, move it to the other position, and then bolt it up again. So it's a, a fixed position, non-actuated. We've got zero slat, which obviously gives us roughly normal Hawk 100 series uh, handling qualities and uh, performance. We've got uh, six degrees of slat, which gives us the high speed performance, the sort of high G, the turn rates that we're looking at. And then we've got the high angle of attack, 16 degrees, sort of slotted flat, slat, the leading edge slat that we use um, uh, to demonstrate those slow speeds and manoeuvring at high alpha. Some other modifications we made, we've got to, obviously to think about the lower speed we're going to be flying at, we've got a little bit more aileron uh, and, uh, and that gives us a little bit more roll control power. We've got a uh, five station wing with no launches on the tips, but we've actually got uh, a slight extension on the wing tips. So the wingspan is larger. We also have an extended fin cap, if you think about it, flying at 10, 10 units more than we'd normally flying at. Then for directional stability, we want a little bit more of the fin actually in the, uh, in the airflow. I mentioned um, the, the fact that it's hydromechanical controls, but we've got uh, a stability augmentation system that's based on the autopilot system in the 100 series. So it's not terribly elegant, but uh, we did decide quite early on when we were simulating lots and lots of flight simulation, as I'm sure you know with uh, flight tests, we do a lot of simulation work before we actually cut any metal, before we actually modify, before they spend any money on the airplane. And one of the things that we found very early on was that um, we'd be struggling to achieve level one handling qualities unless we had some sort of stability augmentation, particularly in minimizing side slip. So SAS was fitted and uh, primarily to control side slip, as I mentioned, it utilizes the autopilot computer. Um, it can demand up to 10 degrees of rudder deflection and a new actuator. And uh, because of the new actuator, it took away our nose wheel steering. So we obviously, we modify the aircraft to, to improve it in certain areas and we lose some of the, the luxuries, if you like, that we have in others. And uh, that, was a, that was a perfectly acceptable trade-off. The fact that we just use differential braking on the ground, which is something that T1 does anyway. Could also use a very limited degree of uh, aileron and tailplane using the autopilot functionality with three modes available, which can use all three axes. However, all that we plan to use at the moment is the uh, is rudder. And one of the interesting points, we've only just done a SAS on flight, so it's, uh, I'll, I'll give you an update on where we are at the moment, but um, it you basically back drives the rudder pedals. So when you move the stick, if you've got the sass on and you move the stick, then the rudder pedals move. And uh, if you think about whether it fails, whether it, uh, it jams, whether it um, basically runs away, the actuators run away, that's another uh, hazard that has to be considered in terms of our mitigation. So obviously the pilot needs to be careful that, uh, that uh, he doesn't hurt himself. 
And because of that reason, for hazard mitigation, we only fitted, or we only fitted the SAS when we were actually intending to use it, and we only switched it on clearly, or we only powered it when, when we were absolutely going to need it. Cockpit displays. I mentioned the large area display and the digital light HUD from Rochester. So it's a single combiner unit, slightly smaller field of view, but actually so much lighter and takes up an awful lot, awful less uh, real estate in the aircraft. So that's the front cockpit head-up display. We've done one flight with someone in the front, and uh, we'll talk about some uh, results for that later. And because of the issues with making the front cockpit experimental with uh, the large area display and with the HUD that's basically not cleared, we don't have an airworthiness air clearance of flight, we, uh, we decided early on we were going to fly the aircraft. The captain would be in the rear cockpit. So when it's, it flies solo because uh, of the, the hazards involved, because it's a high-risk trial, we fly high angle of attack, so we fly solo rear cockpit. And the logic was that with that was that um, at Valley, as an instructor, then uh, the guy in the front or the girl in the front could be very inexperienced anyway, not be able to particularly help. So the, uh, the person in the back is, uh, has all the controls required to deal with any emergency or any situation that, uh, that might come up. Obviously, we had to work new procedures. We had to move some switches and gauges, and uh, we needed to consider what would happen um, if there was a problem. No head-up display in the rear, so again, not less than ideal, but again, this is what the, this is what the, uh, the life of the instructor in the rear seat of the 100 Series Hawk has. They have this uh, MFD multifunction display here, which is sort of quite close to design eye, and you've got great view out front, as you can see there, and you've got um, absolutely tiny uh, head-up display on here. And, and in the last two years, my eyesight has deteriorated, so I have, that's definitely glasses. It's uh, essential glasses wear to be able to see that display. But um, you can fly quite accurately and fly all the test points using that. It's not ideal, it'd be better to have a HUD, but it works. We're gonna assess, or we have assessed the displays on one flight, but we're gonna do more of that. The plan is to do more of that once we've actually uh, confirmed the handling qualities. Instrumentation, I don't know how much uh, interested in instrumentation, but obviously it's an experimental aircraft, so it's got to be instrumented. We need to record all the data we can. We also telemeter all the data. We've got a telemetry team uh, in, the, uh, in the office uh, for every single flight, um, and uh, probably a team of about um, 12 to 15 people, so not quite like F-35 Alpha, which is about 30, 40, 35, 40 people, but, uh, but still quite a big team and uh, quite a serious uh, endeavor. 200 strain gauges fitted around the, uh, around the aircraft, mostly to obviously the changes, the modifications uh, that, that have been made to the aircraft. Um, we wanted to provide a, a phase structural clearance, so we've got structures engineers in the telemetry room, really, really boring for them because if nothing happens, they're just sitting there, it's just a line going across the screen, and if it's a bump, then it's very exciting for them, but it's bad for everybody else, so it's, uh, it's quite tough for them, actually. But uh, obviously, we've got all the experts we require and uh, full data bus recording and telemetry, like I said, all the time. Um, because it's a high-risk trial, we weren't intending, there's no intentional stall, no intentional spin, no intentional departure. That would be part of a full uh, development trial should we proceed with, further with the, with the wing and the aircraft itself. However, because of the hazard of the, the possibility of a departure and the departure mode being unknown because of the aerodynamic characteristics of the aircraft, we don't know that the normal Hawk spin recovery would, uh, would work. We looked in the simulator, we did uh, all, all the work and the mitigation that we could, but, but nobody was willing to take the risk and say, yeah, it'll be fine. 
So we put a spin shoot on the back of the aircraft and uh, it was a similar design to one that was used for these hawk spinning trials some years ago. Uh, fitted in lieu of the brake parachute, so obviously that, that again removes a mitigation for things like brake failure uh, and uh, takeoff abort, so it's, it's all, a, it's all a, a, a jumble or a selection of uh, it's choices you have to make about the mitigations and the things you remove to give you a better system for, uh, to reduce the risk when you're actually flying in an experimental system. Uh, we have a spin panel in the rear cockpit which involves lights, so your indicator lamps to uh, indicate direction if it's confusing, if it's a very high rate of spin or if the horizon's poor. We've got an altitude warning light and tone, so it warns the pilot whether he's at the uh, compulsory um, altitude to, uh, to deploy the chute and also the compulsory altitude to spin, uh, sorry, to eject. So you've got telemetry, you've got a team talking to you, but if you lose the engine, you lose electrics, you lose the systems, maybe you'll have nothing, but you've got this which runs off the battery and then that will tell you, give you a tone to tell you that you obviously need to eject, so that's the final arbiter, if you like. Uh, and we've got three different methods to uh, get rid of the chute. Uh, we've got an explosive bolt, we've got the jaws, and we've got the, no and we've got the uh, speed. If you break the speed limit for the, uh, for the shackle, then the chute will come off. Because again, if we've got a chute on the back, we might need to use it. What if it doesn't come off? What if we deploy it and it doesn't come off? Then we can only fly 140 knots, we're burning 35 kilos a minute. If we're 70 miles away from base, we might run out of fuel, we might not be able to get home. So all of these things needed to be considered. And uh, One of those things that, uh, that allowed us to consider these things and work for them and mitigate against the problems was training and preparation. So the, uh, the Hawk team hadn't had, telemetry hadn't had telemetry experience for about 10 years. Typhoon's done telemetry quite recently, so we used a little bit of uh, uh, a Typhoon experience to bring into Hawk. And uh, I had the F-35 experience, which is uh, three or four years prior. And uh, so we brought that together, and it's quite close to a similar project of being high angle attack. Uh, we utilise uh, specialists from, from Vruff, which is the home of the Hawk, the technical home of the Hawk over the other side of the country from Preston. And uh, they had absolutely no telemetry experience. So it's a lot of training and a lot of preparation. And, uh, and I think, as I mentioned later on, it was all very much worthwhile. The high risk nature of the trial meant that we had a safety pilot. We introduced a safety pilot, which, is, which we don't always have. And that is, so someone who is a pilot can talk to the pilot in the aircraft if there's a problem, if he departs, he loses control, and, but he, he speaks the same language, basically. So when you've got an engineer, you, if you've been experienced, if you've, everybody's worked in flight test or worked in aerospace, engineers and pilots talking together doesn't always work well. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. So in the heat of the moment, it's better to have someone who speaks your, speaks your language. Hence, we had a safety pilot and a lead handling engineer. So the lead handling engineer it's a very high qualification in terms of experience and level of understanding of the systems and relationship with the, with the pilot. And their sole responsibility in this respect was obviously to help recover from the spin. Uh, previous project experience was used. We, uh, we actually got a simulator at Wharton in the new simulator facility, uh, got a quite a good aerodynamic model. Uh, one of the problems we had was that the control feel, the spring loading for the stick, etc., wasn't great, so it didn't feel like a real aeroplane, but it did fly like an aeroplane. So it performed the same, but it didn't feel the same. But, so it's the next best thing. And the model is more important than it feeling, it feeling right. But it enabled the movers to be practiced. We could uh, do infinite numbers of spins, departures, ejections, uh, shoot deployments, shoot failures, uh, rudder jams, landing, on, landing at Wharton with you know, emergencies, 
So it's absolutely fantastic mitigation against any problems that have occurred. And so far, we haven't been faced with any, any real difficulties. Um, training syllabus, obviously very, very closely monitored by the NAA and TAA now, and, um, and by our director of uh, flight operations, and obviously lots and lots and lots of training. More training than we anticipated, because the, the trial has taken a little bit longer than we anticipated as well. Uh, a number of things to uh, mitigate before uh, the aircraft actually gets airborne, obviously testing on the ground, and there are a few things we did on the ground. We had, we had to fire the, uh, fire the chute on the ground, and uh, which I think is a great idea to make sure everything works. It's end-to-end -end testing. That made perfect sense to me. And uh, it did work. We needed EMC, obviously, to make sure that um, the, uh, there's no issues with the computer and the avionics um, clashing and uh, problems that uh, might cause the mission, mission computer to, uh, to fail or give erroneous information. And we looked at the new SAS actuator. So this was after we'd started flying. Once the SAS actuator was ready, it was fitted to the aircraft. And uh, we did like a taxi trial, basically, to see what the aircraft's like taxiing without any nose wheel steering. And surprisingly enough, pedal forces are a little bit higher, but otherwise it's pretty much like taxiing at T Mark 1, which is what we expected. Into the test programme then. So um, the, the green uh, area shows the uh, limitations for zero and uh, six degree of slat, uh, and the dashed green line shows the combat flap. So we, we used the combat flap setting, which is uh, a, a, a smaller HOTAS-controlled trailing edge flap selection that the T2 and uh, 100 series Hawks have to enhance uh, sustained turn rate and instantaneous turn rate at uh, medium speeds. And uh, it automatically retracts in, uh, in the 100 series, but the limitation is it's manually adhered to for uh, advanced Hawk. Uh, we've got a 12 angle of attack limit at the lower slat settings, and we've got a 500 knot 0.8 Mach uh, upper limit. So quite a decent envelope to fly around with in zero and six degree slat. And the zero slat is pretty much similar to, uh, similar to a normal 100 series, series Hawk, as I mentioned. So you look at the blue triangles, they're the performance test points, and the red circles are the sustained turn rate, instantaneous turn rate, and high G test points, which I'll cover in, in a moment. But you can see how some of them are quite in quite close proximity to the limitations. And Limitations are important. We have, to adhere, we have to adhere to them. Sometimes they're real limitations and there might be a problem with the aircraft structurally if you exceed them. Sometimes it's just because nobody could be bothered to do Or, sorry, we didn't have enough uh, time to do, the, uh, to do the paperwork to provide the clearance. So uh, we weren't overly concerned that this was a structural issue. However, we had to adhere to these limits. So a 0 0.78, 0 0.78 test point using you know, high G and sustained turn, max rate turn, wind up turn sort of manoeuvres is quite sporty, especially in a hydromechanically controlled aircraft. Fly-by-wire, it's probably not quite so bad, but it's still um, quite sporty. So we, we, we exercise great care. Sorry, I mentioned at this point that um, um, Cameron Ward, who's a flight test engineer, who did most of the work in making this presentation, I do need to mention his name because I didn't at the beginning. He would normally uh, give at least 50% of this presentation and he'd talk about the, the engineering aspects. So uh, I, I just want to recognise the fact that he made, uh, he made a lot of effort into this, the trial, as well as producing this brief. Uh, results were, uh, were all good, all positive, and couldn't really tell that much difference with uh, zero degrees of slap. Um, we saw improvements in sustained and instantaneous turn rates, which was, which was good uh, in a six degree configuration compared to the zero, which it would have been disappointed had we not seen that. 
Um, the sustained turn rate did fall marginally short, but it was only about half a degree a second uh, on, the, on the target that we had, which was the TX, TX target. And um, modeling predicts we couldn't, we couldn't quite, we almost got it in the simulator, so the actual aircraft provided quite uh, an accurate reproduction of what we'd seen with the model in the simulator. We couldn't quite make it. And I think if we'd used um, a combat flap setting, a different combat flap setting, so if we went into production, we would probably have some combination of the leading edge slat and the trailing edge combat flap together to give us the best wing shape to provide uh, maximum G. But we couldn't do that for this trial, so we were close. The high G and the instantaneous turn rate were comfortably met in the six degree slat configuration, and um, the only thing there is that the, the, the G we were targeting was quite close to the G limit, and again, it's a manually controlled aircraft, there is no G limiter. So it, it was a little bit challenging to achieve, but the aircraft itself the airframe managed it absolutely fine. So this is the high G demonstration manoeuvre example. This, so this is one of the parameters for TX, the TX competition. 15,000 feet, maintain greater than 6.5 G for a 140 degree heading change, um, and you're allowed to lose 2,000 feet in altitude, and you're allowed to lose 10% of your initial uh, indicated airspeed whilst you're doing that 140 degree heading change. So you can see the trace there, and this is a, again, it's a manually controlled aircraft. The aircraft is slowing down, so obviously there's the stick position, the deflection is changing as, as the speed changes, so you can see there's a little bit of, a, a, little bit of a, a wobble, if you like, in the G, G trace. 370 knots we started, about 15,500 feet, so we started a little bit high, but not too high, because if we start too high, then obviously the air's a bit thinner and we lose performance. That's the point at which we achieved 6.5 G. Got a heading there, very mathematical. There's the 140 degree heading change, and you can see that actually we can hold 6.5 G until about that point. We dropped below it there, but for, for a significantly longer period. But uh, the actual results were uh, 140 degrees. We lost about 11, oh, sorry, 1,200 feet, so significantly less than less than the uh, the allowance we had, and 7% uh, of the entry speed. So. If I was a better pilot, I could have made it much better and probably achieved 7G. Although at this, uh, this test point, the actual G limit was about 7.1, 7.2. So you've only got a 0 0.6, 0 0.7 of a G before you overstress the airplane. So that's why it's a little bit wobbly and why it's so close to 6.5G. And clearly, we made a number of attempts at this manoeuvre as well. I wanted to mention the, um, the, the, the preparation for the trial also. So I talked about the the hazards of the high angle of attack, the, the, the risk of departure, the risk of spin, the risk of uh, us being unable to recover the aircraft. Hence, we, um, we wanted to use, uh, we wanted to be equipped with a spin chute. And one of the um, uh, mitigations was, uh, was for a, an airborne test of the spin chute. So I personally wasn't 100% sold on the idea that we needed to test it in the air. It kind of makes sense that you do an end-to-end -end test of the system if you're going to need it. However, it could be potentially more hazardous, could, could actually add more hazard. And um, F-35, for example, did not do, so they did however many thousands of hours of high alpha testing, they did not do an airborne, airborne spin shoot test. And the reason for that was their chief test pilot, uh, John Beasley, told me that uh, when he did it in the F-22, it was the worst thing he'd ever done in an aeroplane, so he didn't want to do it again. So they did one on the runway at speed, about, I think about 100 knots, but they didn't do it in the air. So we did. Uh, it was insisted upon and uh, it was successful. However, there's a learning point I'll mention uh, a little bit later on after this because we want to 
make sure that uh, you know that we learn that uh, as a test test community we learn from uh, issues that we see. We looked at twenty thousand feet, so. Um, I'll mention in a moment the, the initial test points, again because of the hazard, again to mitigate the risk, are flown at 25,000 feet. I said that the performance test points are at 15,000 feet for TX, but we, we chose 25,000 feet. It's much harder to fly up there, it's much harder to fly at high angle of attack, so I mean the hazard is increased, if you like, of departure because of the altitude. However, if you do depart, you've got an extra 10,000 feet to recover, to eject to deploy the chute. So that was why we started at high altitude. So we figured that uh, 20,000 feet was a, a reasonable altitude to go for the, for the test for the chute. Uh, with a 215 knot uh, braking, chute braking limit, we, we were told we opted for 165 knots at idle throttle. And it was performed at a fourth range because of the large uh, trace, and um, it required close liaison with Kinetic who, uh, who run the range. So there were a few issues. Um, Effectively, um, we'd, I didn't fly this. This is this is one I, I wasn't I wasn't involved with, um, but um, so it's all right for me to talk about it. <laughs> um, but uh, we simulated everything to the nth degree, and uh, we simulated this, but we probably didn't simulate it as much as we'd done with uh, with the flight test. So there were some considerations that uh, should have been taken, should have been hoisted on board, and covered, but we didn't probably cover as much as we should have done. So it was a very, very close liaison with Kinetic and the range control, and we had a chase aircraft. We, had, um, uh, we used a planning system to work out the locations and the positions, and like I say, it was simulated a number of times. However, one thing that wasn't simulated, discussed, I believe, was the fact was, that it was the wind speed. So the simulator used nil wind in terms of positioning, and uh, I wasn't there, but um, I'm get, I assume at the brief it wasn't necessarily uh, wasn't necessarily briefed or covered. So the, uh, the practice didn't cover the wind, and there was a 50 knot wind on the day. And I think the position where the chute was deployed was short of the target, but because the um, the trace is so huge, it would normally be absolutely fine. But because of the wind, it was just slightly outside. I think the chute landed in the trace inside the trace, but. The release was um, was just outside outside the limit, so it caused a little bit of a bit of a kerfuffle and uh, an incident report. But um, it wasn't really a safety factor. But it's a very very good learning point, just to show that you need to consider other aspects that might seem very obvious, but then doesn't mean everybody's going to actually uh, apply them. So once we've done the zero and six degree slap, we uh, we put someone in the front, and uh, I'm, I'll mention a little bit later that. Um, uh, one of the um, other TX requirements is a high angle of attack tracking task. So it's actually a gun's tracking task against another target aircraft. And because of the configuration of the airplane, there is no HUD or gun sight in the rear cockpit. We have to put someone in the front for that. So there's only uh, two or three flights in the whole trial where it will be two crew. And uh, this was a flight which was to test something else. So it wasn't to test advanced Hawk, it was to test something else for the company in Hawk. Uh, so we were able to put someone in the front and, uh, and look at the, uh, the large area display in the front. And uh, very favourable. And um, as you can see, the, um, it's, it's a very high definition uh, colour screen. And one of the most impressive, best ways of selling it was, I think, one of the pictures I showed earlier. But if you expand this, uh, expand one of the portals, so it's very, very similar to the philosophy in the F-35. So normally four portals, and then you've got uh, a fast action bar at the top, which gives you all the domestic information, like where your gear is, how much fuel you've got, what your weapons are, what your frequencies are, all in one, in, in, on one display, so you don't need to change displays to find out all that information. 
But if it's too much information, or if you want to see um, a really, really, really good big picture of your tactical situation or just your navigation display, you can enlarge any of these single displays like a map or a tactical display, which might be a data link to the whole, to the whole display. And, uh, and then you can zoom in and zoom out. So obviously if you've got 300 tracks on your data link on a Typhoon, you've only got a screen that's that big. Whereas on this, you've got it that big, which is the advantage for F35 and large area display. Red, uh, really, really good display, as you'd expect, because it's in production uh, for a fifth generation fighter, but it read, it was very viewable in uh, high sunlight conditions. There are some issues we've got, and it's an it's a experimental kit, and uh, it's linked to the existent, extant uh, operational flight program software. So the, operate, the, the mission computer that we have in a T2 or a 165, it's the same software with this, which doesn't really um, work to the advantage of having a large area display. So if we were going to develop this, we would want to write some new software that would provide better avionics and, as I mentioned, emulate things like a laser designator pod, um, other weapons, radar, etc. So this is Cameron's little joke. Um, so if we're ferrying the aircraft, we talked about taking it to uh, Royal International Air Tattoo or maybe going to India to take it to an air show if, we, uh, if we're able to do that. What do the pilots really want with their large area display? <laughs> <laughs> and it is it's a high definition picture, so you can, you can see the penalties and goals really, really good. And you can expand that to the whole, whole side if you need to. And it gives you the audio as well. <laughs> so similar, um, similar graph, but this time looking at the, uh, the 16 degree slats. So this is the high angle of attack testing. The first thing you notice, or you should notice, I hope, is the, the very limited uh, flight envelope. So because it's not an actuator slap, we take off and we land with it in 16 degrees. So you have a 0.5 Mach, uh, 280 knot limit with the SAS off. So in a Hawk, it normally climbs at 350 knots. And obviously, as you get higher, airspeed Mach relationship means that if you hold airspeed, you're going to bust your Mach limit. So it's very easy to overstress, which we haven't done yet, but very, very easy to do so. Uh, different limits with the SAS on and off. There you can see the test points. Uh, we've got uh, wind-up turns to uh, up to 24 units angle of attack with a 16-degree slap. We've got the stabilised uh, test points up to 22 units, and then uh, a demonstration point. So that's the, that's the test point I mentioned at 15,000 feet, which is actually tracking another target, uh, doing manoeuvring flight with a gun sight, showing that uh, the aircraft is a stable, basically a stable gun platform in air combat. And that's one of the TX requirements. Talked about 25,000 feet, again, just purely to mitigate against the risk of departure. And um, it makes sense, but again, it's one of those things you need to think, you need to think about. You need to weigh up the advantages and disadvantages because it, has, it brings with it its own hazards of the thinner air and, uh, and handling qualities. And they're the all-important demonstration altitude of 15,000 feet to show that we can, uh, we can achieve the, uh, te the test points or rather the requirements for TX. That's the first flight, I think we put that on basically. We don't have any nice video, there isn't any, but you can just see the, the slots, the gaps in the flap between the leading edge flap and the, uh, and the wing and the 16 degree configuration. Flying the uh, 16 slat uh, testing, which is what the whole, what the project's all about. So, you know, we did get some high G, six degree slat, and uh, we've got this lovely uh, display in the front cockpit, but what the meat of the trial is the high angle of attack. It's this, this, this 16 degree slat flight. 
uh, and it was very exciting to get up there, 25,000 feet to start with, slow down, and then, uh, and I remember we, we got to, we did a test point, I think, at uh, 15 units, and then we went to 18, and on the way to 18, we got this buffet, pitch nodding, not very nice handling qualities at all, and I thought, you know, if, if this is the way it's going to be above 15 units, if it's going to be like this all the time above 15 units, I'm going to take them. I don't know what, you know, how we're going to, how we're going to fix this. It's very difficult to, to sort those sorts of handling qualities. Um, it was a, the roll wing rock was easily controllable with aileron. However, it was not very nice at all. And bearing in mind we're looking at tracking a target at 22 units angle attack, there's no way you'd be able to do that. However, when we got to 20 and above, uh, those characteristics subsided, so it was very steady. So it was an interesting, uh, not anomaly, but an interesting phenomenon that we'll talk about in a moment. And again, we get to 23, 24 units angle of attack, and it's almost like it's a fly-by-wire aircraft. You've got full back stick, and you can roll and pitch. Obviously, you can only pitch down, but then you can pitch back up again with full back stick. And it feels as though you're nowhere near the stall. You're absolutely nowhere near the stall. It's, it's just sitting there, 24 units angle of attack. And, um, and no, no, uh, we obviously haven't uh, um, assaulted the, um, the handling qualities, but uh, it feels as though you're nowhere near any departure. And then my pilot, my comments, basically there. Bit of, oops, sorry, bit of pitch nodding. So initial uh, results, this is that phenomenon I mentioned, and we've called it untidy handling, about 17, 18 degrees angle of attack. It's probably a three degree band, and uh, you can see the activity. You can see as the pitch attitude builds up, and there's a little bit of a, little bit of a wing drop, and then that, that roll angle you can see changing and cycling. And you can also see the rate, the activity there. So there's no movement of uh, rudder pedal. The rudder pedals are head, held steady. There is uh, activity with uh, the aileron with lateral stick to, to keep the, stop the wing drop and, um, and if it's wing rocking then it's just allowed but basically to stop the wing dropping and then obviously the pitch trying to hold that attitude, just trying to hold the angle of attack. So there is a bit of activity with the control column. And this is, uh, hopefully you can see the, the, the box in here but it's the, it's the lift curve and, um, and you can see that it's very, very flat at the top and this is where I think we get this uh, 23, 24 degrees angle of attack where we've just got full up, full off stick. We don't have the gearing within the tail plane to allow us to have any more control, and that's another thing that we would, another aspect that we would need to change if we were to productionize the aircraft or go on and test the wing further. We would need to adjust the gearing of the stick to tail plane to allow us to get more authority, but, but we just don't have it at the moment. So the lift at that level is sort of in the expected region, but um, this, uh, this lift curve break, if you like, here, or the, as, it, as, it, uh, as the curve flattens off, was more severe than expected. And uh, it's not that we're close to sea on max, it's just that it's the, it's the, um, the characteristics <coughs> of the airflow of the wing over the, uh, over the um, uh, route, wing route, uh, with the airflow breaking away basically, and obviously causing that profit and, uh, and rocking. We've got uh, the uh, wind tunnel results, and we've got some uh, blocker results, and then uh, the actual, this one here, which is all is the, is the broken curve, that's the actual flight results. So the solution, the clever people, the engineers, decided that we were going to use an aerodynamic blocker, again, on the, uh, as I mentioned, on the, on the wing route, and it's uh, provide a more sort of progressive separation of the airflow um, and the, and over the route to, to stop that pitch break occurring. Um, and uh, it's made of um, 
additive layer man manufacturing, 3D printing. And when I read this, this was made by this slide was made by Cameron. He said uh, time scale from identification of the problems having a blockers fitted was a week. And I thought if we take this brief to America and say that, they'll just laugh because they'd, they'd do it in two hours. So uh, it's still it's still good for us to have done that. And uh, we um, made that modification, got it cleared, and then we flew with it. And that's a picture of the actual modification itself. You can see there's a very, very tiny gap in between the slat and the top of the blocker. Otherwise, it pretty much blocks all the airflow uh, that comes through the slat just for that um, 20 centimeter band. It did improve the characteristics of the wing rock and, uh, and the pitch instability, but it didn't get rid of it. So it wasn't as bad. Uh, and like I said, it's only a band. So when we get to the high alpha above 20 units, it's okay, which was very, very gratifying. Um, but performing accurate pitch capture and roll capture, which was one of the TX tasks, so we needed to fly 22 units angle of attack, uh, and we wanted to do it incrementally from 15 to 18 to 20 to 22. Um, but we had to fly a precise attitude, a precise angle of bank, and capture it uh, with level one handling qualities, and there was no way we were going to do that in this band. But we might be able to do it at the higher levels of angle of attack. <coughs> so it made it better, but it didn't solve it. Um, that is speed tape and uh, one of the other issues one of our the, the former chief aerodynamicist decided that it might be an issue with um, um, leaking air airflow leaking between panels and uh, other issues with the imperfections on the wing if you like or on the slat itself so on the wing sorry not the slat so uh, it was decided to uh, cover that to make sure that it was uh, there was no leaking and that it was a really good smooth surface Push the angle of attack band up where we have the, where we have the uh, phenomenon. Uh, so it's slightly improved by the blocker, but still there. And now it's at a higher angle of attack and slightly improved. So it's still an issue, but uh, I think because we've experienced it and because we can work through it and the high angle of attack test points are beyond it, then uh, it's not as much of a problem as we initially anticipated when we first experienced it. So we, we've done all the flying so far without the SAS. And uh, we have to do, again, risk mitigation. We do all the test points, SAS off at 25,000 feet and 15,000 feet. And then we put the SAS on and we do them at 25,000 feet and we do them at 15,000 feet. So we have actually flown once with uh, the stability augmentation system and uh, automatically counteracts size slip with use of rudder. It's a little bit like an aileron rudder interconnect, effectively, but obviously a little bit not quite as simple as that. Uh, and it definitely reduced the pilot workload in terms of stick activity at, uh, in the bucket levels, keeping the wings level, and 360 degree rolls at high angle attack, which were one of the requirements of the TX I mentioned earlier, as something that uh, we did them um, with the SAS off. And because of the results we found, we're on a bit of a pause for that because of the levels of side slip experience. So we're not actually progressing at the moment with the 360 degree rolls. So you look at the, this is the non-SAS um, traces for, uh, roll stick, rudder, so with, um, without the sass, the pedals are fixed, so my feet are just resting on the pedals, the, the rudder pedals aren't moving, and uh, the rudder sort of moves, I guess, with the airflow. Uh, roll stick is used to compensate for wing drop, so I am trying to keep the wings level, so it's, uh, it's not, not particularly high frequency movements, but uh, reasonably so. Um, yaw that's occurring is a response to that roll and a response to the buffet and the stall, and then you can see the, the rate and the side slip there. So if we superimpose um, the effect of the SAS, then you can see obviously there's an increase in rudder because 
it's, it's not manual anymore, it's automatic. So the SAS system picks up that side slip and tries to eliminate it through use of the rudder, and the rudder pedal obviously moves with the rudder. So you can see the side slip is minimised, your rate is lower, uh, and roll stick activity is significantly less. So for pilot workload, which is what we're interested in, we're interested in making level one handling quality, so the pilot doesn't have to work so hard to fly the aeroplane in these conditions, it actually worked quite well. And that's a reasonable graphic representation to show you that. Some of the um, problems and challenges we encounter, we talked about um, uh, big teams, we talked about the inexperience of the teams, the training we had to go through, we talked about telemetry, every flight had telemetry. Um, we had a limited uh, pool of people, so we've got single point failures for the pilot, for the safety pilot, for the structures guy, uh, and I think for one other. So a team of, an essential team of 12, we've only got, we've got four single point failures in there. So it's not great and not particularly good for a rapid technology um, experimental programme, but uh, this isn't a rapid programme. And we've flown, I think, 15 flights now, and um, the last time we flew was January, and the time before that was November. So it's kind of on a bit of a slowdown at the moment for various reasons. Team travels from Bruff, so they need to come over. If they come over and the weather's bad, then they just go home again. It's tough, but obviously it, it's, it, it sort of wears them out, and, um, and it obviously costs money as well. Uh, lots of other tasks, lots of other work going on, and one of the things we, one of the problems we've had recently is the momentum. So when we started, really exciting experimental program. Uh, it's uh, something you know, everybody's exciting within the company because everybody loves the Hawk and looks like we've got uh, we're giving it a new lease of life. We're developing it. We're developing the cockpit. We're developing the wing, and maybe we're going to give it some more thrust with a, with, a, with a new engine or a modified engine from Rolls Royce. Really, really exciting, and everybody is really, really up for it and working very hard and doesn't mind. Unfortunately, it's just slowed down, and it's got to the point where now I think there are certain people um, who are you know, as, as less motivated, it would be fair to say. And if you're less motivated, you're less focused, and actually that's, a, that's not necessarily the safest position to be in. So I think you know, we need to, we're cognizant of that, but that's another lesson learned for a programme. If uh, it's all very well saying it's risky by moving forward quickly and working, working hard, working long hours, but actually that's when everybody's focused and everybody's really a level of arousal is really high. For us at the moment, we're faced with a different problem. Weather limits, again, it's a high-risk trial. We might spin, we might stall, uh, we might depart, we might have to take the shoot, so we have to have really nice weather. And uh, for Lancashire, that's not, uh, not, not, not so good. We've actually been quite lucky. We haven't had many weather cancel days. We've also got a limited crosswind limit for various reasons, obviously because of the wing and because we don't have nose wheel steering. Uh, we don't have a brake shoot, etc. So uh, we've got a, a slightly lower... Uh, crosswind limit, so that's, that's another factor for, uh, for which is, can stop us from flying. Program priorities, um, we've got uh, Typhoon development, we've got uh, uh, British Royal Air Force Typhoon uh, production and delivery aircraft, we've got foreign customer production delivery aircraft, so a lot of priorities that are juggled around and, uh, and advanced talk isn't always, the, isn't always the top one. And when you've got these single point failures, we've only got three pilots who fly at Wharton now and only one of them flies the Advanced Hawk, so it's, um, you can see that we're, we're faced with a number of difficulties in terms of programming and priorities. And I mentioned that already. The SAS, um, so again, this is something that's brand new. Um, Ingenuity, a company called Ingenuity, I don't know whether anybody knows of them, but apparently it's two guys who work in a garage, but they're really smart, and they, <laughs> they, do, they do the stability augmentation software, really, really good using the actuators for the Hawk. And um, unfortunately, I think it wasn't their fault, but they were probably given some wrong information, so there was some sign error. 
uh, which meant that um, it didn't work. I think when, when we switched it on, it failed. So we couldn't get it to work the first flight. So the first flight we intended to fly with SAS, we didn't go because it wouldn't work, which is better than getting airborne and finding out that it doesn't work. <coughs> but, uh, but that was probably a delay of something like six weeks while they recoded the software. Um, some of the other, the, the other problems we've had, basically, from le uh, legacy autopilot functionality because you use a slightly different actuator, which takes, takes up a different space in the hellhole in the Hawk, and it's very, very tight inside the fuselage. You know, there's lots and lots of equipment in there, and adding different actuators, different equipment, sort of um, uh, not, in, um, not with uh, a long lead time means that we, we don't necessarily have the clearances that, uh, that we would expect or we'd like to have. So there have been a few delays on that. Interesting one in terms of operating the aircraft from the rear seat, which nobody, uh, crew systems and survival systems, didn't tell us that there was an issue with the Sonobog system, but apparently it has to be switched on in the front cockpit first before you switch it on in the rear cockpit, and it's got, you've got to have AC power, so you've got to have an APU, auxiliary power unit running, uh, before you can do that. So that changed the procedures, so you get into the back seat, start running the APU, aligning the inertial nav platform and get all the systems going, and you have to get out, switch the oxygen on in the front cockpit, make sure all the other switches are made, and then get back in the back and, and start it up. So that was mitigated procedurally, but uh, could, have been, could have been a nasty one that would have delayed us. Strain gauges, I mentioned about the instrumentation, we had 200 of those, and again, some of them were sort of uh, swapped, the, uh, the tracks were swapped, so we were getting horrendous loads on the inboard slap when actually it was the outboard slap, which was acceptable, but. Uh, one of those things that happens, that's another a learning point that any, any, any flight test program sees. Um, we had, uh, we cancelled the first spin shoot uh, test flight at, um, at the range, which I think costs something like £30,000 because that's how much it costs to, to hire the range. And if you cancel it at the last minute, then everybody has to get paid and we lose the money. And the reason was because we wanted to make sure that the explosive bolt would work, we changed it. Uh, before that flight and obviously it, it didn't work on the ground when we did the test, we did the, the, the built-in test, it didn't work. If we hadn't changed it, probably would have been fine. So one of those things, a lesson to learn perhaps, or double, double check anything that you change before a, a, an important flight. Uh, FTI, we talked about parameters, legs found to be swapped and uh, that could, also, could, could be nasty and it could cause uh, a termination of your flight test or again cost, it's probably not going to cause uh, a problem unless it's unless it, unless they're swapped in the sense such that you, uh, you you exceed your structural limitations without realizing, which obviously would be significantly bad. And fortunately, that didn't happen. Backup for positions, so backup for people in telemetry. Um, people need holidays, and uh, people have other things to do. The link simulation had a great uh, impact on the quality of training. This is something I learned on F-35 at Pax River. We had a tiny little simulator. It wasn't a great, wasn't a great simulator at all. It wasn't very good visuals. But again, it was a very, very accurate flight control model. So it flew just like the real aeroplane in that respect. And we linked that to a massive, to the, to, to the full telemetry team of about 40, 40 plus people and did lots and lots of training and, and bringing that experience back from the States and a little bit of experience we had from Typhoon and some other ideas. We actually, were actually very successful in terms of mitigating the hazards and risks. And I think it was a genius move to uh, put the large area display in the front cockpit because for which I'll mention in, for, for the future life of the jet, it's, uh, it's basically going to give us uh, the opportunity to develop displays for Typhoon. It'll, it'll give us the opportunity to, display, uh, to develop replacement displays for all those Hawks that are out there at the moment, and at very little cost or trouble to the programme. 
Further development of the wing, I think um, we've, we've proved that uh, performance is enhanced, um, but it's, is it significant enough for someone to spend the significant amount of money uh, to develop? If we had a customer who was going to buy 100 items and uh, wanted this equipment, so let's say India, because it's, it's perfect for their, their operation, high altitude, hot and high, and uh, a trainer, but also sort of a ground attack aircraft, then, uh, then I think we'd be able to develop the wing, we'd be able to go, go for that. But would it be significant? Would the improvements be significant enough for that user? It's difficult to say. We haven't done takeoff and landing performance testing. We haven't done any performance testing other than the TX test points that I've mentioned. And it's a 2022 flight program, so that's nothing. You know, I mean, if we did a, if we did, if we developed the wing, we'd probably have a, I don't know, 30 flight spin program just on just on spinning. And before that, you have to do everything else: stalling, departure, everything else. Um, for production, it would be a fully actuated slap, and obviously that's going to be very expensive to develop, and probably combat flap to optimise the wing shape for performance, particularly at high speed. <coughs> SAS, it's uh, not a particularly elegant stability augmentation system, and it would be required to get to give us level one handling qualities for certain for certain customers. Um, the Hawk, uh, the Hawk T1, or any of the marks of Hawk, they're not level one in uh, in all conditions but they're acceptable to all those air forces out there that operate them. Um, and actually, you could argue that um, uh, if they've got predictable handling qualities, the fact that it's not level one it actually means it's quite a good trainer because you don't want a trainer to be too easy to fly. Large area display and head-up display, uh, we need to work on putting some bespoke software in there. So, as I mentioned, utilize the, some, some software in the uh, front cockpit for Hawk, future Hawk development, so that's simulated laser designated pod and radar, electronic warfare displays, etc. Optimise the eye, design eye position for the, um, uh, the, for the new HUD because that's a single combiner and as I mentioned there are some issues with field of view but uh, I think we can optimise that and uh, integrate those synthetic, fun uh, synthetic sensor functions. Uh, there is probably uh, development options, I mentioned Typhoon, I mentioned for future, future of Hawk, so the most likely future for this airframe, bearing in mind we haven't finished the trial yet, personally, I think, will be to do, develop the avionics system, the display and the light HUD in the front cockpit, either for a Typhoon refresh, so a Typhoon midlife update, or which, which, which obviously is a project that has a lot of money, or for Hawk for foreign customers who wish to develop. The Royal Air Force really interested in the large area display, especially with F-35 coming online. They would love to have it, but they don't have any money. And unfortunately, that's 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 the way of the world with uh, with a lot of these uh, a lot of these development trials and aspects that we've had. But um, it's been very successful so far, um, and I think the most likely use will be for those development aspects. I'd like to finish off there, and uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Sorry, it was too long. Uh, hi, Carlos. Um, you obviously, it's a high-risk high programme. Did you consider putting two crew in the aircraft? Obviously, you had telemetry, you had your safety pilot monitoring, and obviously the high-risk nature might drive you down a single single occupant, but was there any consideration to occupying the It's a shame Mark's gone, because he could have answered that, answered that question. Um, yeah, th yeah, it's a really good question, and um, there, there are advantages of having two crew for exactly those reasons. You know, someone else to... Uh, to read out the altitude, someone else to mitigate the fact that, you know, the, 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 in terms of risk to life is reduced. I mean, you're doubling your risk, I guess, by putting two people in there, but you're reducing the fact that they're going to pile in in the aeroplane 
uh, and not eject or not take the shoot because you've got two people in the aircraft who can, uh, who can, who can take the correct action. And I think we did consider it and uh, whatever we, the team sort of decided that it would be single pilot operation from the rear because it just kept it super simple. And this is the first high risk trial that's been uh, regulated by the, uh, the MAA, so the military organisation that regulates all test flying. And anecdotally we heard that they're, they're very risk averse, they don't like the, the idea of high risk trials. So for example, limitations we have on this aircraft when we're flying high risk points, which are all points with 16 degree slack, we can't fly over any populated area, so we can only fly over the Irish Sea. So when we, if we wanted to do the spin shoot deployment um, in Cardigan Bay, then uh, with a 16 slat we'd have to fly all the way around the coast, we wouldn't be able to fly across Wales. So with a zero slat or six degree slat, it's not high risk, it's medium risk. So that allows us to fly over populated areas. So arguably we could fly two crew with the other slat uh, configurations. And on that subject, one of the future uses potentially will be uh, we have some partners that we're working on development of fighters and trainers and uh, and foreign partners, and um, one of the one of the uses we're trying to put the aircraft to will be um, for the development of, of their project. So it's a combined development of, uh, of this other project, and uh, we're hoping to fly you know, VIPs or foreign test pilots to demonstrate the capabilities of the airplane. Airplane probably at high angle attack because that's where it's best and also in the front cockpit, they'll be able to see the, the large aero display in the digital cockpit. So they'll see the, the, the best aspects of the aircraft. But that will be in the zero or six degree slat, so that's the medium risk. Does that answer? Mm -hmm. yeah. So the safety pilot basically is the second, second crew member. Um, forgive the question coming from a helicopter pilot. Uh, what's the, uh, assuming that the future had an actuated uh, slat rather than the fixed ones for the trial, what would be the impact on the other parts of the object? Good question. And I think uh, the, it would be, so it would be sp the, the, the actuation of the slack would be obviously speed related. So it, like we've got the combat flap in the 100 series, that retracts automatically. So you, you, can't, you can't break the limit. So you deploy it with the HOTAS. And um, if you reach the 380 knot, 385 knot limit, it will just come up. Um, the normal flap, takeoff or landing flap, is not protected. So. Uh, for the actuated slap, it would be similar to combat flap, so it would be uh, protected. Whether it would be, that, so the philosophy of its use hasn't been considered in terms of whether it's automatic. So you pull to 10 degrees angle of attack at 15,000 feet, 380 knots, and the aircraft, the system automatically thinks, okay, I want max performance, I'm going to put the slats out. Or is it a HOTAS, put the slap and the combat flap out, I'm about to try and pull 7G. Probably more likely the latter, because it's not a digital flight control system. And uh, I think, sadly, we missed the boat on that. I'd love to be giving you a, a presentation on the Hawk, the digital fly-by-wire Hawk, and that would be probably what we need to, what we need to do. Uh, but it would be, be a balance of the two, so I'm not sure how intelligent it would be. It would be intelligent enough that you wouldn't break it, and there wouldn't be, structural, there wouldn't be the structural issues, but whether it would be literally, I'm, I want to pull a lot of G, I'll take it. But it would be gear down 16. Uh, so if you were doing a stall, if you wanted to have stall performance, there'd probably be a stall button and then it would, be, it would be on the gear. Um, just looking at the blocker for the, uh, the initial part of the slat, is there any thoughts about putting a leading edge route extension in to help to control the aerodynamics in that area, in those high alphas? They didn't, uh, didn't, didn't consider that. Um, and um, again, production. 
that could well be. I mean, it's we wouldn't be able to do that. I mean, it's that that would be too invasive, too mm. too too much of a step. But it's you know it was um, six months of wind tunnel testing to get to the point that we you know we were able to we, we knew the slat design and then manufacture the slat. So for for a lurks, if we were going to do it, might well be a production solution, absolutely. But um, I'm not um, I'm not we didn't have the you know we didn't have the assets, the money, the time to be able to do that. And nobody's talked to me about it, but it's a very good question. I like that. I'd like to have two fins as well. <laughs> That'd be my money. Two fins, not a bigger fin, just another one. I've got, I've got another question. It's probably a bit of a test pilot school question. Oh, yeah, the, the engineer's not here, so so I can't. So don't ask me anything really hard. <laughs> I was just really at the uh, increase in the fin area, and also the, you mentioned the extension of the, of the wings effectively. I was wondering how that compared lateral directional characteristics compared to the standard Hawk. What effect did that have on NV and LV? Yeah, so I mean, we, 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 I think it was, it's at least a foot and a half. I think it might be three feet increase in wingspan, and it's nine inches on the, on the fin cap. And uh, in terms of um, stability, zero slat. It was, you know, for the pilot, for handling qualities, it was, it was almost um, unnoticeable, to be honest. Having said that, didn't do any back-to-back -back assessments, and we didn't look at. I didn't. I, I have not compared the figures, but um, but just qualitatively. Mm -hmm. So from a pilot's perspective, in terms of handling qualities, it handles really nicely. I mean, the, the Hawk does as well, and it's only that band, the 17 to 19 units angle of attack band, where you've just got buffet and nod, and it's not very nice. But if you go through that to full back stick, it just sits there <coughs> nicely at full back stick, and you can roll. And, uh, and finish and control the aircraft. So that's, that, that, yeah, that, that, it's um, encouraging. Nobody's got any questions I've got about nodding, because it's a follow on. Is that an interaction between uh, the wing and, and the flow of air or disturbed air over the, over the tailplane? Yeah, I mean, they're talking about it's, it's breakaway of air at the root, and I think, um, I think it is, yeah. So it's, really, it's basically, it's intermittent. So obviously, it's not, it, it's not reaching stall. At that point, but it's just uh, it's breaking away and it's moving around on the wing and adjusting, so it's changing the lift on the on the tailplane characteristics. So hence, um, I think we didn't have a pitch stick uh, trace on that, but there's uh, but there's a just just a gentle nod, so it's not falling and then coming back up. It's not it's not marked. It's noticeable, but it's not marked. It would not allow you to carry out a tracking task, obviously. So yeah, there was quite. A, there was a. There was the. I've got. I have got a slide on uh, an additional slide on the because they had a blocker uh, underneath, and it's in. A, it's in a. It's it's on the um, on the slat uh, inboard, and very low an angle. When I saw it the first time, I thought it just looks wrong, and uh, it's like the Toblerone on a on a normal hawk, but it's 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 uh, it's underneath the wing, underneath the leading edge, which which was a bit strange, and and, and much and that's and the T forty five has one much smaller. And, uh, and it works and it's optimised for T45. That's what we tried to start with when we, uh, when we looked at the blocker, but it wasn't, it wasn't effective because the, um, the cord of the slat is much, much bigger on the advanced hawk than it is for the T45. Because the T45 is optimised just for landing, for landing at low speed landing and takeoff. It's not, it's not a high angle attack tool, if you like, for the, or performance tool for this. Uh, but the, that obviously, the, that experience, T45 experience, was, was utilised. And I remember when we were looking at the whole trial, when we were researching and preparing, that I looked, because um, I've never been involved in T45, but I got a lot of the paperwork and a lot of the you know, SCTP notes 
um, as you do uh, sharing sharing data within within the organisations to actually research what their problems were and what issues they had because they do have a lot of issues in the development of their aircraft, mostly ground handling. Any more? Oh, oh. I'm interested in the telemetry, the safety pilot telemetry. Um, during the training evolution you did, how, how did that work? Was it a kind of a directive relationship from the ground upwards, or was it a way for a question and assist? Yeah, so, good question. And um, the, the relationship between the safety pilot and the part of the team was that the, the lead handling engineer, so an FTE, would talk to the pilot as, uh, as he climbed up, got to the test point. As soon as you start the test points, the safety pilot covers everything. So the safety pilot is there for the departure, but because we don't want him to just butt in suddenly, you know, you want to build a rapport and a relationship, he took over for uh, briefing the test points and going through all the, all the cards as we, do, as we actually did the flight test, which I thought was, um, was actually quite a good idea. So you build that rapport with the, with the safety pilot. We had uh, certain radio calls, certain language that would be used, which we decided and practiced beforehand so that it was crystal clear what was required. And, um, and we had the problem that in the simulator, you've got an indicator which shows whether the stick is central in uh, laterally and, and longitudinally. You don't have that in the aircraft. So you obviously get spoiled in the sim when you need to centralise the controls if there's a spin because you can use that display. So there's an advantage in that you can feel where the position is for central stick, but there's a disadvantage if you have to do it for real, you're not going to have it. So uh, the safety pilot, one of his key jobs was stick position. So a little bit forward, a little bit forward, and there was a, we had a specific calls to achieve that. So actually it worked really well. And it was all, all the things like, it, if you had the SAS on, so you had the stability augmentation on and the aircraft departed, the first thing you need to do was disengage it because it might have caused a departure, it might have gone rogue, it might have some problem with it. <coughs> and obviously he's there to, to prompt all of those things. Yeah, so it was actually really good. It worked really well. Sorry, following on from that, is there a reason you didn't put control desins in the aircraft then? Just sort of stick for position indicators? You know, control desins up there? Um, <coughs> No, I think we looked at, we, we looked with the large air, a little bit like F-35, what we wanted, we did want a, uh, a smaller, like a standby LCD panel underneath the LAD, which could, could function, uh, this is the front cockpit. So we, the rear cockpit is a standard cockpit, so I'm flying for the rear cockpit. So we could, could add something in there and modify that, but again, a modification to an existing cockpit, clearance, cost, etc. And we decided that with the mitigation of telemetry, and the, we do think things like half-stick rolls, so we look at half-stick rolls, so on the ground, you've got telemetry, practice it three or four times on the ground to make sure that you know where half-stick is, so again, same, same with the central stick. So um, we could have done that, and I think, again, if we were doing a spin trial, then I think that would be a good thing. We've got an aileron indicator, there's an aileron indicator to make sure they're neutral, because that's probably more critical in terms of the spin. Sorry, there's another yeah, it's actually not really too much, too much to do with the actual flight trial of the wing, but the choice of the elements um, you put in the front cockpit, because you've got obviously the head-up display and the large area display, but with F-35 not having a head-up display, that both of those in, because it gives you an opportunity just to simply have that assessment of those separate things, or is it a decision based on what's the most likely end um, state of a product where you, you can choose to put a head in or not, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, what we wanted, what we really wanted, was a pop-up HUD, and the and, and the light HUD is probably the closest thing to that. So you could use a Striker Two helmet, so you could use the night vision, subject of another lecture, 
uh, Striker 2 helmet, which, is, which gives you the helmet, which gives you all the queuing system that you would expect. So you've got from a, a Striker 1 helmet or a F-35 helmet, but also, like the F-35 uh, Generation 3, gives you night vision, night vision as well. And um, we did talk about that, and that was one of the things we, we would really like to have put the helmet in the front cockpit for development purposes, but it's just, it's just a step too far. So it was much more straightforward and to take the conventional option of putting the HUD in. And because it's a new HUD, because it's, uh, it's lightweight and uh, it's a digital light engine and it's actually easy to take out, and because it's not flight critical equipment, i.e. you can't captain the aircraft in the front cockpit, we could do anything with it. You know, we can put a cuddly toy in there, it doesn't matter. So, um, to a degree. But um, we decided to go with the conventional route to be able to then take that step later. Because Lockheed obviously made a massive, took a massive risk not putting a HUD in the F-35. And it's kind of worked, but it's been very, very expensive and very problematic to get them to where they are now. Great, everyone's finished. Before I say thanks, I know you want to just introduce- Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Just before I give yeah. a thanks. So uh, thanks, thanks very much for listening. It's a bit, uh, I haven't practiced it that many times, so I do apologise if it's uh, if it's taking you past your bedtime or it's been it's been a bit too long. But hopefully there was no repetition. Or no, I wasn't specifically talking about the youngsters in the crowd. But, uh, <laughs> but um, I hope hope you enjoyed it. But uh, I've got a friend along who I'd like to introduce, and he's here to do a little bit of networking or talk to people for advice. It's James Ketchell there sitting at the front, and he's planning to fly a gyrocopter around the world. On his own, I fly a gyrocopter, and I'm not sure I'd want to fly one around the world. I have to say, um, but uh, but he, he's here tonight, obviously, to, to to listen to the talk, but also to, to network or ask any advice or um, get get um, get some mentoring for uh, aviation because he's not a seasoned aviator. So if anybody feels it doesn't have to be gyrocopter related, it's aviation related, that sort of uh, endeavour, then uh, please, if you if you're around later on, if you come if you come to the pub, please um, chat to him and give him a bit of your time. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, before I, get, uh, I would just really like to thank you, Cos, for, for coming down and actually talking to us through uh, an interesting night. As you mentioned earlier, it's been unusual to do real proper experimental flight testing, uh, and it's, it's great to see the, the, the team up yeah. at Wharton doing something and keeping keeping those skills sharpened uh, in, in the aerospace industry. So fantastic. And also to note that it's not necessarily bad to be backseat driving as well. Yeah. So, uh, so um, can I just ask before I completely uh, finish up to uh, ask to give a vote of thanks to Cos for coming in and talking to us. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.